This is a CBC podcast. Je te remercie, Canada. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky put lots of Canada into his speech to Parliament, including a word he had just learned, in Inuktitut. Today, me and uh, my beautiful First Lady, uh, I had uh, really had the honor of meeting with the Governor General of Canada, Honorable Mary. Simon, and she taught me, she taught me a word from her mother tongue. Ayuinata. Ayuinata. She said the meaning of this word is don't give up, don't give up, stay strong against all odds. And so shall it be. Ayuinata, Canada. Ayuinata, Ukraine. Slava Ukraine! That in-person address was historic, but it might only be the second biggest geopolitical event involving Canada this week. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's allegation that the Indian government was involved in the murder of a Canadian citizen in this country was a bombshell. I'm Catherine Cullen, and this week on The House, we're going to dig into both stories. We'll bring you the highlights of Zelensky's visit and ask whether the world support for Ukraine might ever waver. And we'll probe this fracture with India, looking at what the Canadian government knew when it made this massive allegation and what the rising tension with India means for both countries. Plus, later in the show, why the U.S. largely controls a key water source in Canada and the hopes for change as a key treaty is renegotiated. First, though, one of the most significant figures of our time brings his message to Canada. The House is now in session. And when we want to win, when we call on the world to support us, it is not just about an ordinary conflict. It is about saving lives of millions of people. Literally, physical salvation, ordinary women and men, children, our families, whole communities, entire cities, Russia's destruction of Mariupol, of Valnavaha, or Bakhmut, or any other city or village in Ukraine must not go unpunished. Zelensky received at least a dozen standing ovations during his address to Parliament, and the Canadian government made a new commitment. $650 million in military aid for Ukraine spread over three years to acquire 50 armoured vehicles. Afterwards, we asked some MPs who were in the audience what their takeaway was. Here's Conservative MP Shuvaloy Majumder, NDP MP Heather McPherson, and Liberal MP Yvonne Baker telling us what struck them most about Zelensky's comments. Resilience takes a great amount of will. And I know that Ukrainians and Canadians hold that will together. So I think that expression of that was probably one of the most profound moments I've seen. 
Just how important the relationship is between Canada and Ukraine, how steadfast we need to be in our support of Ukraine, how much we need to not forget that this war continues and that Ukrainian lives continue to be lost. Generation upon generation of Ukrainians have immigrated to Canada, many of them uh, fleeing from hardship and oppression by whether it's the Russian regime or the Soviet regime or other forms of oppression. And this is a very special day because this is an opportunity to mark what Canada has been doing to support the Ukrainian people, but also hear from President Zelensky who's leading that fight, not just on behalf of Ukrainians, but uh, on behalf of all of us. Well, Zelensky's address came at the end of a tense week for Canada on the global stage. Caught up with two people who have been watching all of this closely. Peter Beam is chair of the Senate's Foreign Affairs and International Trade Committee. He's also a former diplomat and deputy minister. Gary Keller served as chief of staff to Conservative Foreign Affairs Minister John Baird. He's also a vice president at Strategy Corps. Thank you both for joining me. Great to be with you. Thank you. So you were both in the room for President Zelensky's speech I'd like to hear just one thing that struck you most. Senator Beam, I'll start with you. Well, I had been in the room for the last speech that uh, President Zelensky gave to Parliament, and that was a video speech, and it was in Ukrainian. So we had to use uh, our headsets and get the translation. This time he spoke entirely in English, and uh, that was uh, very impressive, I think. He threw in a line of French as well. And it indicates just how much he has worked on getting that message across, which is so vital wherever he goes, whether it's the UN, whether it's Washington, or whether it was Ottawa. Yeah, how he's had to be not just a wartime president, but a salesperson Absolutely. of sorts. And Gary, for you? That's a great point. That also struck me, uh, given the fact that he is needed in, in Western capitals to communicate a very clear message, and, and he has clearly improved his, his language skills. But I was also struck by the, the arc that President Zelensky cast in his speech, starting talking about in 1983, how in Edmonton, Edmonton was the first world city to have a Holodomor monument, the famine and genocide against the Ukrainian people, and how at the end of his speech, he kind of tied it all together and said, we're going to build uh, monuments in Edmonton and all sorts of world capitals about the victory of the Ukrainian people. And I just thought that just tied the speech together really, really nicely. Now, Senator Beam, you talked about President Zelensky as a salesperson. Let, let's start with the sales pitch. Maybe that's a bit of a crass way of putting it, but the, <clears throat> the message that he's trying to carry in Canada. What is your sense of how resolute the support for Ukraine is, given the amount of money that Canada ha has put into supporting the country? I think the support in Canada is very resolute, and uh, that's one reason why he was here. He was here to thank Canada and Canadians. He's very uh, aware that there are many Canadians of Ukrainian origin and that there are many U Ukrainians who have come to Canada since the conflict started. So that was a message that he definitely wanted to to give and one that he wants to transmit through media. I think uh, there's a tremendous unity in Canada on uh, the Ukraine file. It's evident uh, among the politicians, but I think Canadian society in general. And so when he in his speech said, uh, you said you'd be with us uh, as long as as it would take, I believed you. And that's the message that he wanted to convey. I also thought it was very kind of him to mention the military training that uh, we have provided over successive governments to Ukrainian soldiers that some would say has made a big difference in the war. And, well, and certainly that was what he said. Now, Gary, we are at the same time in the midst of an affordability crisis. Talk to me about whether there is a, a challenge in convincing Canadians that this should still be a significant part of what Canada is spending on. 
Well, part of what President Zelensky was doing this week, <clears throat> he was in Washington, he was in New York at the United Nations General Assembly, and part of the sales job that he has to do for an American audience, obviously the United States is one of the biggest contributors financially, militarily, and there is a strong base of concern or questioning amongst certain members of Congress in the United States. Canada is a little bit different. I would be hard-pressed to find a single member of the House of Commons or Senate that would be in a similar situation or opposed to future funding. But the challenge is, is that it's never a done deal in the sense that the war's been going on for a year and a half, and it doesn't take very much for the average citizen to start asking questions. And I do think in some circles in Canada, there has been an increase, partially because of the time that has passed, um, and that's a natural, for people to start asking questions. We are in an affordability crisis. You know, when I was walking over here, there was a woman on the street who was saying, no more funding for foreign wars. And I was struck by that. And I, you know, I don't think she's alone. I think there's probably a portion of the population that feels this way, especially at the current time. So having President Zelensky here is really important because it really buffers and, and creates that support amongst Canadians to see in person person, that, that strength of leadership that President Zelensky has. Senator Beam, Gary talks about the trip to the United States for President Zelensky. And in many ways, we imagine that is the much greater concern for him. Talk to me about, I guess, what you're watching in terms of the dynamic in the states when part of the Republican Party is clearly bristling against this spending. Well, I, I think it's, uh, it's not just the Republican Party in the U.S. Uh, I was in Europe last week on Senate business, and uh, I noticed there, too, there are various uh, political factions who are concerned about the expense of the war in terms of providing uh, military assistance and the like. But there also uh, the concern that President Zelensky would have is that this, because this, this conflict is so protracted, it's starting to move away from center in the global media. So his job is to keep an avid interest there among people. And in the case I was in Germany, uh, Germany has always had a, a, a big peace movement because of their history. And there are groups there who are saying, okay, let's let's make peace. And what struck me too about uh, the president's speech today, he did not get into his 10-point peace plan. I think he just assumed that we as Canadians accept every point. And one thing that I would like to add um, was the, uh, the announcement that the government made about um, support for mental health. Because uh, over time, uh, this conflict has really taken its toll on people, on separation of families, not just loss of life, and on children in particular. So that was something welcome. Uh, it was very welcome to my ears. Mm -hmm. Gary, as we do look ahead, though, I mean, you have to imagine that Russia is just watching and hoping for a change of power in the United States to potentially radically change the support for Ukraine in this conflict. Yeah, I mean, this is the big question coming up, obviously. The presidential election coming up, it looks like uh, Donald Trump is going to be the nominee unless he is disqualified from doing so through the legal process. And that is a big challenge that the world is facing and an inflection point that is coming up. Um, and so having President Zelensky on the road, on tour, and really promoting the case to sort of buck up the support for Ukraine, especially in capitals where, where it is more challenging, I think is, is really important because, yeah, that, that is going to be a titanic battle coming up in, in 2024. And it has massive, as we know, massive implications for this, this conflict. Okay. Senator Peter Beam and Gary Keller, we're going to hold our conversation with both of you here for a moment because we want to talk about another really important thing that happened in what was a pretty frenetic week in foreign affairs in Canada. Here's how it started. 
Canadian security agencies have been actively pursuing credible allegations of a potential link between agents of the government of India and the killing of a Canadian citizen, Hardeep Singh Nijar. It was a shocking announcement, and opposition parties quickly voiced their outrage. Here's NDP leader Jagmeet Singh and Conservative House leader Andrew Scheer. I grew up hearing many stories that if you raise concerns about human rights violations in India, that you might be denied a visa. That if you went back to India, you could suffer violence, torture, and even death. I grew up hearing those stories. But to hear the Prime Minister of Canada corroborate a potential link between a murder of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil by a foreign government is something I could never have imagined. If the allegations that have come to light are true, they not only represent a murder, but also an egregious violation of Canada's sovereignty. But the Conservatives were also pushing the Canadian government for transparency. Here's Conservative leader Pierre Polyev. I think the Prime Minister needs to come clean with all the facts. We need to know all of the evidence possible so that Canadians can make judgments. Um, the Prime Minister hasn't provided any facts. Uh, he, uh, he provided a statement um, and I will just emphasize that he, he didn't tell me any more in private than he told Canadians in public, so we want to see more information. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's announcement has upended one of Canada's most important international relationships and created uncertainty for the millions of people who share ties between Canada and India. Evan Dyer has been leading the CBC's coverage on this story. He's here to walk us through what this all means and what comes next. Evan, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Now, you have done some important reporting this week yeah. about what Canada actually knew that prompted Justin Trudeau's announcement in the House of Commons. What can you tell us? Well, the Canadian government would tell you that this is not based on conjecture. You know, our sources told us that they have human intelligence and that they have signals intelligence. So that is to say people talking and giving information, but also intercepted communications. And those intercepted communications involve Indian diplomats present in Canada, and that that intelligence was generated not only by Canadian intelligence services, but also by a Five Eyes ally, which means not only does that Five Eyes ally, not only do they help, but they're also aware of the evidence that backs this up themselves through their own independent means. Now, that's interesting because it gets into the question of allies, and we do want to get to that in a moment. But I want to stay with the Canada-India relationship right now, because mm -hmm. India has come out saying... This isn't true. Um, they also say Canada is not serious about dealing with Sikh extremism here. Let's listen to some of what Arundam Bagchi, a spokesperson for Indian External Affairs, had to say this week. If there's one, any country that uh, needs to look at this, I think it is Canada and its growing reputation as a place, uh, as a safe haven for terrorists, for extremists and for organized crime. And I think that's the country that needs to worry about its uh, international reputation. So, Evan, what can you tell us about that argument? I mean, I would say Canada never sought to insert itself into what is fundamentally an Indian dispute, right? And um, the origins of the, the Khalistani movement in Canada, which, and there's no doubt that Canada is a center for that kind of activity, right? There's no doubt about that. But it, that is because there was a pogrom in India in 1984. The Indian government not only did nothing to prevent it, but in some cases collaborated with it. And that drove a large number of radicalized Sikhs out of the country, and they landed in Canada. So that's the origin of this, and people should remember how this began, right? 
Another thing that I should say about this is that India has made requests for individuals. They've gone to the RCMP and they've gone to Interpol. Now, Interpol will issue a red notice if any nation state asks for one, pretty much. It's not hard to get one. I've seen people in India saying, how can you not arrest them? There's an Interpol red notice. The Interpol red notice has to be accompanied with evidence that meets the Canadian criminal standard. And what I hear is that the Indian government often asks for people on the basis of evidence like newspaper articles. Uh, if they were to come forward with solid evidence, I think we've seen in other cases in Canada that Canada is one of the countries that is most willing to extradite its citizens in the West. Um, but that evidence has not been produced. So there is an argument that you will hear in India that, oh, what would, you, what would Canada do if there were Quebec separatists here in India, uh, you know, holding parades and so on? And I think actually the answer to that is Canada probably wouldn't do very much, and it certainly would not get engaged in the assassination of people within India. So, you know, in fact, what, what really is going on here is that India has a different political system and culture that is less tolerant of separatism. We have a major separatist party in our, in our parliament. It's one of the biggest parties there. We've all to live with it. India hasn't. And it has reasons. It's had political leaders assassinated, including Indira Gandhi, who was assassinated by a Sikh separatist. Mm -hmm. So we can understand the Indian point of view, but it's a different point of view from Canada. And Canada cannot really meet India's demands without altering its own political culture, suppressing freedom of expression and doing things Canadians don't want to do. India has taken some action to get its points across. They've stopped issuing travel visas to Canadians. We know there were also uh, tit-for-tat diplomatic expulsions. Do you think that situation could continue to escalate? I absolutely do. I mean, it, but it depends on what is the next shoe to drop. And I guess the main question there would be what comes out of the criminal investigation. The criminal investigation will at some point have to become public. Um, right now, you know, the countries are sort of in a state of stasis, if you like. I mean, they've hit for tatted once. So one diplomat is gone. In the case of Canada, that would leave 48 or 49 diplomats who could yet be expelled. And there are other actions that India could take in addition to the visa one. It could go after Canadian lentils and pulses, things like that. And we know from our experience with China that the, it's the, the economic actions can cause a lot of pain, although also because there's such strong people-to-people -people ties, the, the visa action also has the potential to cause some pain here. If Canada were to retaliate on visas, it would cause enormous economic pain, mostly to Canada, because Canada makes billions of dollars just from Indian international students. So that's why I don't think Canada will retaliate in that way. Now, another fascinating part of this story, and we alluded to it earlier, is what has been happening with our allies. There was some yeah. reporting to suggest that Canada or the Canadian government wasn't being backed up by countries like the United States and the UK. Walk us through that. Well, we've already seen some of that reporting retracted. We saw the Washington Post have to issue a retraction. There were elements of that story which my own reporting led me to believe were false, and they turned out to be false. However, you know, it is true that it's difficult for Canada's allies to uh, really go after India in the same way they would after some minor rogue state because it's a country that they're all trying to court as, a, as an ally. It's a non-aligned country. They'd like to bring it closer to the West as a counterweight to China. You know, that was one of the cores of Canada's Indo-Pacific strategy, in fact, and not to mention that the U.S. wants India in the quad and so on. So uh, they're all somewhat reluctant to do that. But I think at the end of the day, we have to recognize that the allies do appear to have stepped up to some extent for Canada, certainly one ally in particular, and that's the United States. And the United States, uh, not only have we heard from the Financial Times, you know, yet to be confirmed, but we have heard this from the Times with no denial from the White House that President Biden raised this issue directly with Narendra Modi. And the Financial Times claims that some other unidentified Five Eyes leaders or G7 leaders did the same, some of the other people at the G20. So actually, let's listen to a clip here. Let's listen to what Jake Sullivan had to say on Thursday, because I thought it was quite interesting. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. Not going to get into the substance of private diplomatic conversations, but we are in constant contact with our Canadian counterparts. 
We are consulting with them closely. We support the efforts that they are undertaking in this investigation, and we have also been in touch with the Indian government as well. And I will leave it at that for today, only to say that I have seen in the press some efforts to try to drive a wedge between the United States and Canada on this issue. And I firmly reject the idea that there is a wedge between the U.S. and Canada. We have deep concerns about the allegations, and we would like to see this investigation carried forward and the perpetrators held to account. Yeah, and you know, one of the interesting things that he, he said was that no country is exempt. He recognized that the U.S. has a special relationship with India and it's trying to make it closer. But he also said we're going to stand by our principles. And, you know, I, I just would go back to the issue that one of our Five Eyes allies helped provide intelligence here. So um, actually, that is a pretty strong vote of support from the United States for Canada. And it's something that has to worry the Indians. And in fact, you know, the Indians, it's now come out in the Indian press and it was acknowledged by the U.S. ambassador in India, Eric Garcetti, that the Indians invited President Biden to be the guest of honor at the Republic Day on January 26th next year, the U.S. has not responded. It's going to be interesting to see whether they do. If they don't, then that's going to be a pretty strong signal to India that this was a, a, this whole operation was a mistake. A lot of ripple effects for international politics, but let's end it with the idea of the Canadian government and Canada. Where does this leave the Canadian government? I think they're a little bit at the mercy of events. Um, partly, you know, if India chooses to escalate the dispute, then Canada will be forced either to retaliate, which is painful, or not to retaliate, but you still have to absorb the pain, if, for example, of trade actions, but also they're at the mercy of events in the criminal investigation. If the criminal investigation angers the Indians further, then the Indians will feel compelled to, to retaliate. This is a very nationalist government with a very nationalist constituency that has made a strong denial and really can't afford to back off that position. Okay. Thank you for this, Evan. Thanks, Catherine. That's the CBC's Evan Dyer. I'm Catherine Cullen, and you're listening to The House from CBC Radio. Still with me here is Peter Beam, chair of the Senate's Foreign Affairs and International Trade Committee. He is also a former diplomat and former deputy minister. And Gary Keller, he's former chief of staff to Foreign Affairs Minister John Baird and vice president of Strategy Corps. Thank you both for sticking with us. I want to start with the significance of this. Um, you're both very familiar with the world of foreign affairs. Gary, how big a deal is what happened this week with India? Well, it's a huge deal. Anytime you have a split uh, with a country, whether it's a, a cessation of diplomatic relations or a, a trade dispute, it's a big deal. Um, it's even a bigger deal because of the relationship between Canada and India, the people-to-people -people ties, the trade, and also India's increasing role as a uh, uh, an, in an increased power on the world stage. Uh, and, and, and as well, as I mentioned, those people-to-people -people ties, uh, that is a massive situation. Uh, Situation that we face in Canada that is different than other uh, disputes we've had, whether it's the dispute we had with Saudi Arabia or the cessation of diplomatic relations with Iran. While there are populations here and there are people-to-people -people ties, it's not at the same level as the Canada-India relationship. So this is on another level uh, of importance uh, in, in the foreign affairs world and, and, and in a wider world to Canadian interests, Canadian values, Canadian trade. Uh, and so it's a, it's a major inflection point. Peter, how does it compare to the things you experienced as a diplomat? I don't think there is a comparison. There is one that came to mind, and that was in 2004 when I was posted in Washington and Prime Minister Chrétien got up in the House of Commons and said that Canada would not join the U.S. in the second Iraq war. So that's the only thing that I could think of in terms of uh, a relative level 
of importance where the Prime Minister would use the House of Commons to speak to Canadians uh, about that. In this particular case, it is ironic. We are one of the oldest democracies in the world, and India is the largest one. And we've had our ups and downs. Um, I think in, the, in 1974, for example, the Indian government decided to um, use a Canadian nuclear research reactor to produce plutonium, and they produced a nuclear weapon. And that almost uh, resulted in a, a breach of, uh, of relations at that time. Indira Gandhi was the Prime Minister of India and Pierre Trudeau of Canada. So this is also a story that is evolving. And I agree with Gary. I mean, we're, we're sort of buffeted here. Our uh, retaliatory uh, capacities, I think, are not, not very high as Evan Dyer indicated in his, uh, in his report. But on the other hand, too, uh, we have support from our Five Eyes partners on this. I also think, and I'm, I'm, I'm very sure of this because this is diplomatic practice, that before this announcement was made by the Prime Minister in the House, we reached out through various channels, whether it's through the National Security Advisor or very senior diplomats, just to say, we have this issue, can we talk it through, can we avoid it uh, becoming uh, public? And uh, that obviously did not work. Gary, if you were still in the Foreign Affairs Minister's office and there was this push to put your cards on the table, tell me how you would think through how realistic that was, what the possibilities are. Well, I think, as Peter was, was pointing out, there has been a lead-up. I know for a fact, I've heard and, and talked to people that there were missions to India to try to find a way forward on this, and clearly that was rebuffed. You know, there's been some some suggestion that, you know, the government's hand was forced in some way by the fact that uh, the Global Mail was going to run uh, a story and gave basically the government 24 hours. The big question is whether or not the Prime Minister had to go out and make a statement in the House of Commons, and I think people will be debating that. Obviously, the House of Commons is the biggest stage for Canadian democracy. And when you make it a statement in the House of Commons, like Peter was mentioning when, when Prime Minister Chrétien uh, made the statement about the Iraq war, that is that is a different venue than a press conference or sources say kind of thing. And so I think reasonable people can debate the government's approach to this. And I think that is happening in, in coming days. We've seen the opposition leader, Mr. Polyev, on the first statement out was very, very strong, condemning the action. And I think, you know, if a Canadian citizen has been murdered, we have to condemn that. But I think subsequent to that, he's also been asking some very tough questions and very pointed questions. And that is his job as leader of the opposition, to ask those questions, to say, okay, you've gone out and made the statement now, it's time for the government to put more cards on the table. Whether or not they will, this is the big question over the coming days and weeks. It gets into the murky area where uh, you have a legal process or an investigation that is underway. The information is also based on human intelligence and signals intelligence. Signals intelligence is, is one thing. That's, that's cable intercepts and mm -hmm. uh, message intercepts. But uh, human intelligence, it is entirely possible that some people could be at risk here. So uh, the normal reaction by a government would be to be fairly cautious in terms of releasing uh, information. Given that caution, given the fact that these are allegations, there's an investigation underway, Peter Beam, what is the most that Canada can hope for from its allies in terms of getting back up at this moment? I think it's uh, it's dialogue. So if, uh, as Gary mentioned, the Financial Times uh, report uh, rings true that President Biden raised this with Narendra Modi, uh, that is uh, that is great. Maybe Rishi Sunak could do the same thing, and uh, and others as uh, as well. But 
it doesn't have to be that public either. Maybe this is where quiet diplomacy, friends and allies uh, working together can uh, can do this and raise it with the with the Indians in a quieter way, turn down uh, the volume and get a dialogue going. I think that would be mm -hmm. the best outcome. Mm -hmm. Gary, uh, it's not so long ago that Canada launched its Indo-Pacific strategy, right? Trying to build closer relations with a lot of that region, um, given some of the complexities around China. What does this spell for that that strategy and, and how Canada relates to, to that broader part of the world? Yeah, that's a great question because the Indo-Pacific strategy is only about 10 months old and it's pretty hard to have an Indo-Pacific strategy if you have no relationship with the Indo part of the Indo-Pacific strategy. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, the government is going to have to go back and take a look at all the things it has pledged to do, especially in that part of the world, uh, to see uh, if what, if anything, can be salvaged. And I, I think the challenge is we're heading into a protracted deep freeze uh, in the relationship between Canada and India. It reminds me a little bit of the situation with Saudi Arabia, where our relationship was in the deep freeze for you know, years, you know, three or four years before there was an agreement to resumption of diplomatic, not diplomatic relations, but exchange of ambassadors and, you know, kind of putting things back together again. I really do believe that, uh, you know, there's a deep freeze and there's a cryogenic deep freeze in the back part of the freezer. And I think that's where we're heading with the Canada-India relationship, at least for the short term. Uh, I know that, you know, people-to-people -people ties sometimes soften that a bit. Uh, but, you know, the Indians have stopped processing visas. We'll see if there's tit-for-tat action by Canada. Um, but I think we're in, in for the sort of medium haul here for a definitely rocky road ahead. Peter Beam, for anybody who is listening to this and, uh, you know, perhaps they're waiting for one of those visas, they're deeply concerned by hearing Gary say at the back of the cryogenic freezer. Uh, I mean, what, what would you say about the most hopeful path forward here, I guess? Well, cryogenic freezer is an interesting expression. Uh, I wouldn't quite go that far, but I think uh, tensions have to somehow be reduced and uh, they'll probably play out for a little bit uh, longer. I couldn't help but think uh, and compare this to the situation with China that we had with the, with the two Michaels and Meng Wanzhou um, uh, some time ago, where... Um, uh, a, a country that is perhaps a, a larger power, in the case of China, in the case of, uh, of India, will decide on a point of principle, okay, the Canadians have done something, we're going to make an example of them. So maybe in some ways, as a middle power, we're in easier mark. Um, the threat of retaliation is not as high, and if they want to make a, a, a global uh, example of us, um, and they do that, and they can do it with relative impunity. You've both given us a lot to think about. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Great to be with you. Peter Beam is chair of the Senate's Foreign Affairs and International Trade Committee. He is also a former diplomat and deputy minister. Gary Keller served as chief of staff to Conservative Foreign Affairs Minister John Baird. I spoke with both of them Friday afternoon. Lots more coming up on The House Podcast. I'm Catherine Cullen. You're listening to Canada's most popular political affairs program. A new episode of The House drops every Saturday. Let us know what you think about what you hear. Send us an email, thehouse at cbc.ca. There's another issue on Canada's foreign affairs agenda that has been bubbling along in the background for years. Canadian and American negotiators have been trying to hammer out a new treaty to manage the Columbia River in B.C., 
The Columbia has more dams than almost any other river system in the world. The treaty to manage those dams has been in place for more than half a century, but it expires next year. As Bob Keating reports from BC, there's a lot riding on those treaty talks for the people who live there and for the wildlife. Biologist James Crossman walks down the rocky shore of the Columbia River near Castlegar, BC. Crossman plops a waterproof microphone into the river, searching for the presence of white sturgeon. And what it's doing is it's listening for active acoustic transmitters, basically tags that are implanted in the sturgeon. The 2,000-kilometer river starts in British Columbia and winds its way into the U.S., emptying into the ocean in Oregon. Sturgeon are not as plentiful as they used to be here in the Columbia, mostly because of those dams. They've evolved to survive for a long time, and we've made changes, humans have made changes to the areas that they live within a single generation. So their ability, because they're so unique, because they've evolved for such a long time, because they, you know, they mature late in life, all of these really unique characteristics that have allowed them to, to survive over those millions of years really complicates their ability to adapt to really rapid change. Those changes are apparent right behind James Crossman. He stands in the shadow of the Hugh Keenly Side Dam, a massive 50-meter-high wall of concrete blocking sturgeon's natural migration to the Pacific. And the situation is worse for salmon, which have disappeared completely in the Upper Columbia. Penticton Indian band elder Chad Ennius leads a salmon ceremony. First Nations in BC's interior do this every spring. Bang rocks and say a prayer to call depleted salmon home. It's beyond just important for our people. I think it's important uh, in terms of it being a keystone species in the Columbia. You know, there's a big difference. The number of other animals that you see that might have depended on salmon. Just like we depend on salmon for food. Sovereignty over water, even if it's a little bit of sovereignty over water, is one of the things that's at stake. This is Canada's, if you go by the nationality thing, this is Canada's water. How does Canada want to use that water? Eileen Delahanty Perks is the author of the definitive book on the Columbia River Treaty, A River Capture. She says the issue for salmon is water flow, but the Americans largely control it all part of what was agreed to during initial Columbia River Treaty negotiations over 60 years ago. You never manhandle the fourth largest river in North America without creating complications. But the original agreement was set up in a less complicated world. And the development of other dams in the wake of that agreement created more layers of complexity. First pictures from the flood disaster areas of Canada and the USA tell their own terrible story. The push to harness the power of the Columbia River was born out of tragedy. Vast areas on both sides of the border have been engulfed by swollen floodwaters of the Columbia River, which swept away everything in their path. In 1948, the Columbia flooded from its BC headwaters to the Oregon coast. Whole communities were swamped and up to 50 people died. Worst hit was the small town of Van Port near Portland, Oregon, where almost without warning, the river burst through a dike, literally washing whole streets away. To ensure this type of flooding never happened again, 
Prime Minister John Diefenbaker and President Eisenhower signed the Columbia River Treaty in 1961. Engineers came up with an audacious scheme to control the river. They planned three dams in Canada and a fourth in Montana to bring the river to heel. The boldest, most destructive engineering feat ever attempted in BC. They would try to turn one of the wildest rivers in the West into a necklace of lakes and rivers. The Columbia River, one of the most erratic in the world, is being harnessed. 30 miles north of the American border, Canadian engineers are constructing the massive Arrow Dam. To make way for the dam, 600 kilometers of BC Valley bottom were flooded. Towns and farms relocated or burned on the spot. 2,000 people were told they had to move to higher ground to make way for the water. The residents of the Arrow Lakes feel that the battle will never be lost until the water comes right over their properties and dooms them to elimination. Some locals tried to fight, like British fighter pilot turned farmer Chris Spicer, who spoke to the CBC in 1975. My particular piece of land is probably one of the most valuable pieces of farm and in, in British Columbia. Uh, and we had a wonderful, happy life here, which came to an end with the building of the High Arrow Dam. I grow the winter leeks. They didn't used to be, but now they're quite a high-value crop. Chris Spicer's daughter, 73-year-old Janet, still farms on what's left of the property on Arrow Lakes, part of the Columbia system. The wounds of expropriation that her father faced all those years ago are still fresh for her. We were told at the time that that BC didn't need the Arrow Lakes Valley, even though it was so productive, second to the Fraser Valley, in front of the Okanagan. The whole thing is so short-sighted, and it's, it, it's irrecoverable. That's the thing. It, it's not that it can be put back. It can't. I think it was a shocking act of violence and cruelty to just drown us out. I'm very motivated, very driven by my parents to keep the poem going. Water levels here fluctuate by as much as 60 feet, and under the terms of the Columbia River Treaty, it's the Americans who largely control those water levels. They pay for that privilege by giving Canada hundreds of millions of dollars every year in what's known as the Canadian Entitlement. Janet Spicer and others on the Columbia system don't care much about that payment between utilities and government. They want more control over water levels, so fluctuations aren't as extreme. At low water, her home looks like a moonscape, with exposed stumps and frequent dust storms. Most of the farms are gone now, along with wildlife and the natural feel of the valley. If we said we want it back to the way it was, they're not going to look at you. I actually are. already tried that. Right here, we're standing on a farm, what used to be a beautiful farm. Janet's twin sister, Crystal Spicer, lives in Edgewood, one of the relocated towns, an hour south of Janet's farm. She hopes Canadian negotiators can agree to less dramatic water level changes, 20 feet rather than 60, for instance. She invited the Canadian Negotiating Committee out to see what the dams have done to the region and was impressed. We are being listened to when we had all the meetings prior to the negotiations starting. I think they actually understood just how much the people needed this, needed the ecosystem recovery, how passionate they were about ecosystems and the losses that have happened. Like I say, the farmland won't come back, but people want a living river. I do think a lot has changed, and I am pleased to see the government being more consultative. 
I am pleased to see three First Nations advising and contributing as co-equal partners in the negotiation process for Canada. Eileen Delahanty-Perk says the BC and Canadian governments have made an effort, especially to include Indigenous voices at the table. But like many of the people affected by the treaty, she isn't confident the U.S. or Canada for that matter will give up billions of dollars in hydroelectric power the dams generate every year. The Canadian portion of the river alone generates half of BC's power needs. Delahanty Perk says what's at stake in the renegotiations can't be underestimated. After months of deadlock negotiations between state governments over how to address the shrinking water supply of the Colorado River, the Biden administration is now stepping in. Canadians only need to look south to the Colorado River as a cautionary tale. The Colorado doesn't reach the ocean anymore as dry states squabble over its exhausted flows. The 40 million Americans who rely on the Colorado River are facing the prospect of their water running dry. The Columbia is in some ways more complex than the Colorado. It involves two nations and a cross-border agreement like no other. The stakes are enormous for people and wildlife, for governments and utility companies. Delahanty Perks says Canadian negotiators have to remember the river itself ahead of the profits it generates. A good deal allows some of the water to flow, not as a monetary item, generator of profit, but as a gift to the land, as a home, as a habitat for all of us, that allows fish to come back the way the Okanagan River fish are starting to come back because of the efforts that are being made. All of the health of the land and water in this region depends on flow. You know, the details of it are less important. Canada getting this or the U.S. getting that. Uh, I love the words of one of the Indigenous advocates, one river for the benefit of all. For the House, I'm Bob Keating in Nakas, British Columbia. So how are negotiations between Canada and the U.S. unfolding? Are the Americans open to improving how the river is managed? Kathy Eichenberger is the BC lead for the Canadian delegation at the negotiating table. Welcome to the House. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Glad to have your perspective today, Kathy. You have spoken to people all along the Columbia River as part of the consultations. What what struck you most? Well, what struck me most is how people needed to be listened to. People who were displaced by the reservoirs and the dams uh, they want to be acknowledged. They want to see uh, an acknowledgement of what was lost. And they want to see improvements around the basin, around the reservoirs, even people who are new to the basin. They haven't been in the region before the dams. They look back on uh, what happened as a social justice issue. So people in the region, they weren't consulted in the 60s uh, during the development of the Columbia River Treaty. And and indigenous nations were treated basically as non-existent, right? Would that happen today? Well, of course not. That is why we're passionate about listening to the people and doing it right this time and not making the mistakes of the past. So what we've heard is that they do recognize that they benefit from uh, flood protection, keeping their communities uh, dry and safe, and also appreciate, to some degree, the generation of uh, hydroelectric power. 
but they want the treaty to expand in areas that weren't considered in the 60s. There is unanimous support for enhancing the treaty to consider ecosystem health. And what is that? That includes the health of everything from fish to birds, to wildlife, to natural vegetation, to water quality, as Indigenous people say, all living things. And they also want to see salmon reintroduced up in the uh, Canadian Columbia. It was blocked by Grand Coulee, so not the treaty dams. But this is an opportunity to right a past wrong. Okay, so ecosystem health as being part of what Canada is looking for. I realize this is a really multifaceted issue, but but how would you sum up beyond the ecosystem issue what Canada is hoping to get out of these negotiations? Well, that is a big priority for us to include ecosystem as a third leg of the stool of the treaty that is based on power generation and flood control. We also want to achieve uh, more flexibility on the Canadian side so we can manage dam operations to address our domestic issues without having to have the agreement of the United States. That is a very high priority for us as well. So when you say more flexibility, you mean uh, a bit more control over the water levels? That's exactly right. Water levels and flows, uh, while still continuing the treaty and maintaining all the benefits that we get from treaty operations as well. Well, so let's talk about those benefits for a minute. I read a quote from uh, a representative of a group of U.S. uh, utility companies that really stuck with me. He said, we're giving Canada a giant power plant's worth of output every year. It might be transactionally easier to push wheelbarrows of cash up and dump them at the Canadian border. (laughs) How unhappy are the Americans with this deal? Well, they should be very happy. How we manage flows in Canada really increases their ability to generate more electricity to meet their citizens and industrial needs. That wouldn't happen if we did not operate for those purposes as well. So what we receive, we truly believe and can can demonstrate, is half of the incremental benefit of power generation. And, And that's the fundamental principle of the treaty is creating a benefit and sharing it equitably. And that's our North Star. And we believe that that's what's happening today. And it's going to be even more important as the Pacific Northwest looks to more clean power, GHG free power, and away from fossil fuel uh, electricity. So let me ask you then, you're several years into these negotiations. What is your sense of how willing the Americans are to make the changes British Columbia wants to see? Well, there are changes that we both want to see. You know, I I hear that often. I heard a comment just the other day that said, after five years, show me what you got. But we need to take the time to improve a treaty that's in dire need for renewal and, and incorporating things like ecosystems, salmon, adaptive management, climate change. These are all new concepts that weren't discussed in the original treaty and for good reason. But we are at the table. We just completed uh, many, many rounds. And if you look at some of the communiques that come up after every negotiating round, you'll start to see that there is more commonality and shared objectives in our communiques and the U.S. communiques. We're still there. We are going to be meeting in Portland in the next few weeks. Uh, we're, We're getting closer. Sure, there are challenges. But we are getting closer, and I, we hope to achieve an agreement principle in, in the not-too-distant future. Like weeks is what you're saying is a possibility. Well, 
we're going to be meeting in weeks. We still have a, a few challenges. Uh, we don't necessarily see eye to eye on the value of the treaty benefits. We're seeing it differently. It's part of the ongoing negotiations. Does that mean money? Are we, are we fundamentally talking about a question of money? No, no. We're looking at the value for across all of the different objectives, including the environmental and, and salmon and cultural values, indigenous and tribal cultural values. So we are getting closer on, on uh, these fronts, and we hope to make more rapid progress. Uh, President Biden and Prime Minister Trudeau uh, in the spring directed negotiators to, to pick up the pace and intensify the negotiations, and we've certainly been doing that. We're meeting every week. Very, very intense. We want to get across the finish line as soon as possible. One of the changes or the differences that you mentioned from the first time this was negotiated is that Indigenous communities are at the table this time. What difference has that made? It's not an exaggeration to say that their presence is a historic step. It's unprecedented. Often people question us and say, why are they observers? But they're not. They participate fully in how we develop our negotiating positions and our proposals. They're at the negotiating table. They make presentations on behalf of Canada. So they're basically an equal member of the rest of the Canadian delegation. But they bring something that the rest of us don't have. And it's the, the stewardship and cultural values that need to infuse the discussion of the treaty. And frankly, we believe that uh, having Indigenous nations participate in all of our negotiating activities perhaps gives to the outside world a bit more trust that we have incorporated these Indigenous perspectives in the areas of the treaty that did not exist before. So it's made us stronger. It's made us absolutely stronger as far as a Canadian delegation. Climate change also wasn't part of the conversation back in the 60s. How much concern is there that if we don't get the Columbia River Treaty right, we could see the kinds of situations that we heard about facing the Colorado River where there are states squabbling over a dwindling amount of water? Well, I, I'm happy to say that this is an area where there's absolute alignment between Canada and U.S., and it's around the need to incorporate adaptive management to look at how to respond to, anticipate, and make changes uh, in relation to what is predicted from the climate change models. So it, it's top of mind and it should infuse or affect everything that we do in a modernized treaty. Okay. Thank you so much for your time and your perspective today. Thank you very much. Kathy Eichenberger is the BC lead for the Canadian delegation renegotiating the Columbia River Treaty. That is it for us this week. Our crew on the house is Kristen Everson, Emma Godmere, Christian Poslang, and our senior producer is Jennifer Chevalier. Thanks also this week to Alison Cook with the CBC Audio Doc Unit. I'm Catherine Cullen. Thank you so much for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.